Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. My guest is my buddy here, Jeff McGee. Jeff, I think we met in Oklahoma. Does that make sense? About 20 years ago. Yes, sir. And that'd be right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, might have been my last trip to Oklahoma. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but for 30 years or so, for decades, uh, Jeff has served as a C-suite executive himself. Uh, he's publisher and editor-in-chief of Professional Performance Magazine, which is, uh, I'll get to more during this uh, discussion, which is just an outstanding piece of work with some world leaders. It's uh, an incredible piece of work. Thank I'm you, sir. Uh, privileged to be a part of it. Uh, he's written 32 books. They've been in 21 languages. Uh, he's got four best-selling graduate management textbooks. Uh, he works with people to significantly increase their organizational effectiveness through progressive, innovative human capital talent development training. Uh, and he coaches senior levels uh, in all different kinds of businesses. So, Jeff, welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth. Thank you very much, Alan. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for also the years of support and friendship you've given to me. I have been uh, very blessed, and I thank you very much. And I have been uh, singing the gospel and advocacy of you to everyone I come across. Well, that's very nice of you. It's been it's one of these things. So it's really a pleasure. And so whenever you write, remind me an article is due, I, it goes to the top of my list because I enjoy doing it so much. Thank you, so, um, Jeff. Well, what is it um, that made you create this particular publication? Phenomenal question. So every trade industry has a publication, whether it's hard print or online, a journal. And typically, there's one or two great articles in those journals for those professionals that are what I would call evergreen in nature, but most everything is very time sensitive. So back up the clock 30 years ago, there's a publication called Success Magazine, been around for a century, great publication, but it started to really re-niche itself in the network marketing space. So between that magazine, which had, I think, a good mission and journals, what I realized was the missing gap was a publication for any professional by high achievers, people that really have achieved. It's not like today on LinkedIn, you go in and everyone thinks they're an expert, but if you look at their resume, they can't keep a job for more than a year or two, but people that have really done things. And so I wanted to create that publication of phenomenal people that I admired, that I learned from, that would present an article in 500 to 1,000 words, you know, one page. People wouldn't have to then jump and read forever. It didn't want it to be a book in and of itself. So I reached out, actually. I reached out to three people I was following at the time, and you may not realize that. And actually, I don't think I've ever shared this story with you, so thank you for the question. I reached out to Zig Ziglar because I kind of grew up with him. My father was in sales, and I reached out to you, and I reached out to Jim Rohn, and I reached out to Brian Tracy. Those were the initial force and Patricia Fripp. And I asked the question, you know, here's what I want to do. Would you contribute an article? Uh, and oh, by the way, I can't pay you because I have no money. I'm starting this idea on a, on a hope and an expectation. <laughs> And uh, you and every one of them, stunningly, Alan, so thank you, Dr. Weiss, every one of you said yes, and every one of you had, were with me now. When Zig Ziglar started to become a little bit older, and he knew he was also you know, a little ill, but the world didn't know, he, he sent me an email through his executive assistant, Lori Majors, and said, hey, Jeff, and he blessed me the same way your comments were. And he said, I want to you know, send you some extra articles. I'm going to be retiring. And he sent me 77 articles that had never been published at the time and gifted them to the magazine. Jim Rome did the same. Uh, and you and Patricia Fripp you know, were also very gracious and stuff. Brian Tracy did the same. So even though, for example, Zig Ziglar, who's been very gracious to me in the beginning as you were, 
The last article in each issue performance magazine is also from Zig Ziglar, which I make the comment. I mean, he passed away a decade ago and he's still writing for me. Still so, writing. So, so I thought I was in some pretty good company there. I didn't realize that. Or they were in good company with you, either way. But so that that's what drew it. And and, I, and, I, and then the readership just, you know, exponentially just exploded. People really embraced the magazine because again, the articles are evergreen in nature. And it's a cross section of phenomenal people, whether it's you know, political leaders or athletes. Uh I have that I reach out to again, the element is, you know, don't use this as your bully pulpit to talk to me about your politics or your religion, but you are successful in your own right. So talk about success. American Indian heritage is fascination to me. So I always uh, typically have a tribal Indian chief or principal CEO, whichever they refer to themselves as write an article again on performance, achievement, success from their heritage. Uh, world leaders, the same thing. You went, you went kind of gracefully too from hard copy to include digital. Uh, Absolutely, both are there. Yeah, and you, but you still continue to put out the hard copy magazine, which of course I prefer to read because I like to sit back with my feet up and you know fold these pages back and make notes and so on. Exactly. Now, let me ask you, you you've had you talked about political and sports uh, entities and so forth. Uh, without revealing any trade secrets, you've had the ability to put you know Bill Clinton in there, and I think you had Barack Obama, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. Uh, and you have a very clever, uh, very clever approach to putting a half dozen of the authors in that uh, particular uh, issue on the bottom of the front cover while the, uh, the, the, the hero, you know, the main talent, is, is, uh, takes over the cover. How do you get people uh, who you seldom see in, in, a public, uh, you know, in publications like yours who are generally they're quoted in the press or they're critiqued in the press, how do you get them to contribute? Great question. In the beginning, it was very difficult because I didn't have traction. Uh, even though I tell people, you know, the magazine is like the best kept secret. People, once they see it, then they notice it everywhere. So, for example, I had uh, a government official write an, a, an article in the magazine, and his face was one of the thumbnails. And so let me back up to answer the question. There's some there's some secret sauce in terms of a publication. People go into a, a, a store where there's a magazine rack, old days and even still today, airport, you know, what happened. And they look at a magazine, what's going to grab typically someone's someone's attention may not be the nameplate at the top, you know, uh, Harvard Business Reviewer, et cetera. It's going to be the picture. It's going to be the graphic. So I always uh, try to place the big picture, you're right, of a named person that, that would appeal to business professions. Okay, so that's one. Then being you know, a, a photographer when I went to college, it's always ingrained in me. So that's why I put also usually half a dozen thumbnail headshots at the bottom, and you're exactly right. So someone that recognizes you, knows you, that's a part of your followership, then then they're inclined to want to grab it. So I benefit from you, thus from that circle, and the same thing from the other people. So there's always about seven headshots on there. Now, how I get them is part of that now today is it. So I had a Secretary of Commerce, federal government, walks into another government uh, secretary's office sees the magazine on his coffee table with his picture on it. He literally <laughs> sends an email to me and says, how do I get to write for this? So one is now it has that traction. Two is I use it. So for example, uh, the last the last four presidents, I've had a chance to reach out to and have them write an article for me. Now, whether their staff repurposed something and changed some words so it speaks to performance or et cetera. But a lot of times if I reach out to someone's press secretary or someone's executive assistant or someone's number two, if I can't directly get to them, my starting point is I'm the publisher of a unique magazine. Here's what we do. And here's some of the people I recently had. I'd like to talk to Mrs. or Mr. Whoever about uh, being a feature writer in the next issue. And nine times out of 10, Alan, I get responses because of who I will name drop. 
So, for example, if I wanted to get, uh, you know, someone running for political office right now, if there's someone who excited me, regardless of necessarily their politics, but they excited me because they are an achiever in their own way, that's exactly how I do it. I mean, I would say the last five presidents have written my magazine. Well, that's going to be a game stopper. Um, you know, it's going to get someone's attention. It's interesting, you know, because when I was, uh, as I was building my consulting practice with Fortune 500 firms, somebody would occasionally say to me, I've never heard of you. And I would say, well, you know, I work for Mercedes-Benz and J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America and Merck and Pfizer. I said, why wouldn't? And they said, okay, that's enough. <laughs> so <laughs> we continue. They get the point. Uh, so uh, in your experience, uh, what would you point out as a surprising or unique or kind of strange uh, interview or article that you publish in the magazine? Is there anything that's uh, uh, out of the ordinary? Uh, you know, that, and that, that's a great one. So Elizabeth Dole was probably one of the most gracious people I ever interviewed. Uh, very, you know, very giving, very open, very easy to connect with. And once we started talking, uh, it was also very personable and, and she really did give a lot. Another one would be uh, Joan Rivers. I did the last business interview with Joan Rivers. And um, I remember I was in the Delta Sky Lounge in Minneapolis when uh, when her agent called me back and had her on the line for our you know scheduled interview. And about the second question, she said, wait a minute, who the hell are you? In Joan fashion. And, and what are we talking about? She was ready for what she had always been subjected to, which are always featuring sort of interviews and, you know, in, in comic and et cetera. I said, no, this is about performance and achievement and success where I want to talk about the other side of Joan Rivers, your business mind, your marketing mind, how you have bounced back from massive, you know, challenges in life and adversity that would kick most people, you know, to the curb. And then, you know, she, she dropped a couple of, you know, F-bombs and says, just a minute, I'm going to call you right back, hangs up and calls me back from her personal cell number. So the other way I've got people, you know, whether it's Bobby Knight or Lou Holtz or et cetera, so most people, when they return a phone call, they're calling from their cell phone. So you just, you, you know, you, you don't abuse it, but you keep that cell phone number and you send them a text in true form. So, you know, Coach Saban retired this, you know, recently as we're recording this. And, you know, most all of his press clippings are very much, he's a gentleman. So that got me thinking, Alan, as I was driving down the road literally last week to a client, you know, I want to go back and revisit some of the celebrity people, you know, Bobby Knight, Lou Holtz. Well, I had their cell number, so I literally sent them a text and reintroduced myself. I don't want to assume that I'm that great. They're going to remember who I am. And I just resent, you know, the message back and just simply said, you know, for example, like, you know, no, no BS. There's Lou Holtz on the cover. There's the text message to him saying, I'd like to redo an interview with you. But what I want to do this time is not talk about how you coached, you know, people to be more successful. And I want to look at what's inside the mind of successful people like you and other great coaches as to how do you keep yourself at that A level to be able to coach other A level people. And, and coach, you know, Holtz texts right back and says, let's set up a time to do it. So it, there's a lot of what, what happens in terms of how you get them, how you stay connected, where I'm trying to go. But part of it also is, is I'm being selfish. Like sometimes I've reached out to you. It has been a personal question. Hey, give me some advice. But I think I've built some kind of a relationship with you, if I might you know, be bold enough to say that, where I try not to take advantage of it, because I know people take advantage or attempt to take advantage of it. I wouldn't say they do, but attempt to. So I don't want to ever burn that, that capital I have. When I ask that question, then it light bulbs up what I might ask you to write on next or someone else. But it really is about, I believe, our legacy. And even when I listen to your podcast and you know, I'm addicted, I look forward to your, you know, turning on my computer in the morning, one of my... One of my go-tos in the morning is I've got to listen to your two minutes with Alan Weiss. It's only supposed to be 60 seconds, but it gets me thinking. 
And I think that's a real legacy. I mean, you have children, I don't. So part of our legacy is our kids and then what our kids' kids do. But the other part is our intellectual capital. And, and we're really we're really bankrupt on this planet of, of, of the number of people that truly have original intellectual property. I mean, we've created a planet of hijackers. Everyone's stealing someone else's idea and they're prettier than you and I with all due respect and they're better at self-marketing than you and I. And they present it as if they're great. And half these people, if they had a real great idea, they'd have a freaking aneurysm because their brain isn't used to thinking. Well, let me ask you a question along those lines. Uh, if you don't mind sharing, uh, who have you not interviewed, have not had an article from, who you would dearly love to get into the magazine? Wow, great question. So I think where I am now is I would look at people that I think are, are are shapers of the planet. Now, some of them may not be, you know, name brand names, but like an Elon Musk, I would be very interested to get inside that head for a conversation. Because if you think about it, he really has leveraged and catapulted a lot of great things. And he may be a, you know, a highly controversial personality, but I don't care. You know, so Richard Branson has been very gracious, just as you have. You know, he's written my magazine whenever I've asked, and, and I haven't tried to take advantage of that one because he's a huge name. But, you know, you're putting me on the spot. Normally, I would say the president of the United States. But with all due respect, um, current current occupant doesn't excite me. So that would be one I'd go after. But I, I don't, that's a great question. I think people like, um, you know, like like William Ford. I mean, his, his, his granddad started a company and he was smart enough when he was named CEO and president of Ford Company to realize, you know, I, I may or may not have the brain power to run this freaking company. So we quickly reached out to Alan Mulally from you know Boeing and said, hey, you come in and run this company. You freaking have the brain cells. I don't. My name's on the front of every car. I don't need the ego to also be the president of the company. So I think it's people like that. And Nick Saban would be a great person to get inside his head and ask questions. Yeah. Um, there's some phenomenal women that have passed away that, that I really kicked myself in the butt. I didn't go after them. Condoleezza Rice. Oh, my gosh. I'd love to be able to talk to Condoleezza Rice. There's one of the most brilliant women that, that I've lived with in my 60 years on this planet. Now, let me ask you the opposite question. Uh, have you done an interview or received an article from someone and decided uh, it shouldn't be printed? It shouldn't go in the magazine. And don't, that, don't name names. I'm just wondering if that's occurred. Uh, it, so I'm going to give you two responses. It has happened once with a very high profile personality that I that I actually had to take. And it's the only time I took professional publisher editorial license to edit what they wrote so that it wouldn't embarrass them. And they actually sent an art, sent a comment back about, oh, my God, what a great article. Thank you so much. But um, they were so pompous and, and I had worked on them for a year. And then almost once a month after they said, yes, I'd send them the file pay. Thank you very much. Looking forward to your article. Here's the dates and deadlines. Here's what we're needing. So I was, you know, I kept soft touching and reminding them. And it came up to the night before the deadline. And then they sent, um, they had their press person send, and this is a federal political person, had their press person send a e, uh, text message, excuse me. Um, that we're not going to be able to participate. And I said, not a problem. I appreciate it. We've only had a commitment for a year. And for six months, you've been reconfirming you're going to participate. I'm going to go ahead and run their picture on the front cover as promised. And then when people flip to the page, I'll have um, their picture in two blank pages with an editorial note that after agreeing to write an article on success and agreeing for six months, um, when it came time for the deadline, this was the totality of the article they could come up with on success. What's amazing is that I, I almost didn't hit send on that because I thought, yeah, I might come off as being brash, but everyone who knows me knows I'm not brash. I hit send, and then nanosecond later, the response was back, yes, you will have it in the morning, and they sent one. So that was kind of the you know the jerk in it. Um, aside from that, I've only had one article that, that I've ever not been able to ru run because it just was atrocious, and I was stunned. Um, so typically, you know, I, I, get, I get good contributions from phenomenal people. 
Um, and some of the, even the interviews like Shaquille O'Neal, I did an interview with him years ago. Um, I probably should try to re-reach out, but I've re-ran it a couple of times because it was just that damn good. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to switch gears. Before I do, uh, tell people who'd like to subscribe to Performance how to do that. Thank you very much. Just go to the uh, magazine landing page, professionalperformancemagazine.com. We, uh, one time we used to have a national radio show, so some of those uh, interviews are still there. When we uh, back uh, 15 years ago, I lived in Oklahoma. Matter of fact, when you made the comment, you came there. We actually had a, a, an Oklahoma version of the magazine because we do have regional versions and affinity editions. And I had a TV, a 30-minute TV performance, so that those airings are there, magazines are there, so they can get it all right there. All right. So uh, just say the the, um, the URL again. It's professional. Go ahead. Professionalperformancemagazine.com. I know you're in Vegas now. Yes, um, sir. You going to score tickets to the Super Bowl? You know what? It's funny you say that. Uh, the National Guard has been a passion client of mine for 30 years. I work with the National Guard adjunct generals and recruiting commanders or sales teams. Um, and I've been doing it at half of my standing commercial fees, whatever my commercial fee is, I do it for the government at half price. And I will be in Connecticut. I'll be on a plane during the Super Bowl flying there because that's my give back. So everyone that, hear, that knows that says, oh, my God, you're an idiot. Why aren't you Why aren't you going to some of the parties you've been invited to? But no, helping the military is more important to me. So I'm going to miss it. Sorry. All right. Good for you. Um, I want to turn now in the time we have left to talk about your work with senior executives. And I'd like to start by asking you, uh, post-pandemic, what would you say, if any, are the two or three things that you think has most changed among the priorities and concerns of senior people? Uh, one is the, the forced trend that happened either in their businesses or in the businesses next door to them where everyone went remote for a period of time. And when some of these businesses went remote, that it lingered to not just be a 30, 60, 90 day, it became a six months to a year event. Uh, and then once it was obvious that that's not necessarily what people needed to be doing, I think the, the first challenge is, is getting everyone to come back to the office. And some people are still having that challenge. Now, I have one CEO um, that his name is Vance Dalton, he's CEO of Ag South Farm Credit. It's about a $5 billion financial organization. He has reminded me of some phenomenal wisdom. And one of his uh, prior to COVID that came back big time is simply this. If I can't see you, I don't know you. If I don't know you, I can't promote you. And that is a very powerful piece of wisdom that if you don't want to be in the office, that's fine. But keep in mind, you're not going to be able to participate in these organic pop-up conversations or you know pop-up strategic meetings or regular meetings or be a part of just a, the ecosystem of success. Because when you're not working in the building, as they say, you've got to contrive situations to be connected and you have to have the discipline and purpose-driven mindset to, to have connectivity, just like you and I. Uh, again, I have your cell phone. I, I uh, Hopefully, you'll tell me if I have, but I hopefully don't abuse it. But you're right. I know you're a very busy person. And so typically, I don't want to get you stressed out. But it, typically, a week to two weeks, you've taught me by your responses. A week to two weeks before I need something, I just send you an email or a text and boom, it's, it's right back at me. Um, so I think one is dealing with that mindset. Now, the second thing that came out of remote is I think it has in, in a lot of places. And I think sadly, Alan, to me, my experience is it's going to be more than 51% versus 49%. I think more so than not, what COVID also did was it changed the psyche of Americans and the planet for that matter, even globally, but especially here in the United States, where people now have this mindset. And, and I'm not going to take the stance that's right, wrong, good or bad, but people have taken a stance that my personal life balance is more important than work. 
But for a lot of people, they need to kind of recalibrate and realize, but it's your job that allows you to have your personal life at the end of the day, kids. I mean, you're not going to, unless you're a trust baby, you're going to have bills every month. You're going to have to pay for the utilities. You're going to have to pay a mortgage or rent, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the second struggle I think a lot of business leaders are dealing with is this, this sense of, um, I had my freedom for several months and the reality is when people weren't working remote from home, they weren't really given a good five, six, seven, eight hours of good work during the day. They were given about two hours of work and they're walking around their home in circles and pajamas and walking the dog at 9.15 and doing laundry at, you know, 12.18. And, you know, if you walked into a brick and mortar building, that wouldn't be the videotape. So it takes discipline to work from home. The last answer is urgency. I think we have, again, not panic, not stress, not anxiety. We have lost a sense of urgency. And some of your morning, you know, you know, your your morning minutes talk about that in different elements, whether it is the, you know, the barista who has no idea what coffee means, thus overinflated title, or the person in a restaurant or a person just, you know, you're a pedestrian crossing the street. You have a you have a responsibility. Like move. Don't lollygag across the intersection. But everyone has this mindset of no sense of urgency. Um, I'm in my own world, self-entitled, self-absorbed. And I think that's where a real major professional cancer has come out of COVID is that if you have a sense of urgency, you have a sense of people having passion and caring about the company as if it's a part of their own brand identity, you can kick butt and be incredibly successful today because it is amazing the number of mediocre people thinking they're they're all-stars. We hear a lot in the workplace about the different generations and, you know, we slap labels on people, put them in drawers, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, millennials, you know, yada, yada. Um, and I'm the eldest of the boomers and I find this all kind of rather droll, you know, kind of funny. Um, what have you observed? Are there generational differences in the workplace today that require different approaches to motivate people and incent people? Or, um, you know, I've also read that as people get older, they move, they become more conservative. Uh, what have you observed as you work with these companies? So, wow, um, I do talk a lot about it. Uh, 23 years ago, I wrote a pretty substantial book on generational diversity as your strategic advantage in a workplace with a with a, a psychiatrist friend of mine. Uh, so I have some perspectives on that. So I think if we unpack what you just asked, one, I think some of the stereotypes are true and stereotypes are there because the person making the stereotype from their lens, they see that more often than not. So then we have that old adage, there's always an exception to the rule. I see some of the stereotypes we slap on any age as being true, but also going across to others. Um, I do see some older people that, that are acting like a Gen X, whatever that might mean. But here's what I'm seeing is happening. Again, I think COVID, you know, one of the phrases I used about COVID, when it happened, during it, and then, and then after it, I made the comment, COVID to me was the great global reboot, because it really, in a way, affected the entire planet. And what it did was it gave everyone who maybe didn't have an opportunity to get to the starting line, whatever that means, before COVID, the reality that, hey, COVID realigned everything to zero. So now if it's at zero, what do you do to accelerate when the firing gun goes off and says the race is over? Well, I told all of my clients for years during COVID that whenever America decides COVID's done, pick the date and year. You got to be ready as a business leader because there's going to be like a line drawn in a proverbial sand. And I think the year to year and a half after when we say COVID is done, which really is kind of right now while you and I are talking and making this, this recording, it's going to be the real shakeout of what's going to happen. So the people that think they're entitled, well, you might have had that because you got hired at a grossly inflated paycheck during COVID because people were always were looking for better people. They thought you were it. So there was a lot of money slapped out there, you know, in 20 and 21 that would never have been thought of in 18 and 19. 
So I think one, we do have some people that are very lazy. Well, I think that's an opportunity to either get connected with them. We owe that to them as a leader. Find out why they have that mindset, how we can re-engage them and get them back in the team. And if we can't, we need to give them what they want, which is their freedom. We need to free them up and let them go find a job somewhere else. Because I also think right now people that are hiring are being much more judicious and asking better questions and looking at people's social media footprint to make sure they're not hiring someone else's bad luggage. I mean, I just got off a Zoom call with you with uh, executives at UPS, a client of mine. They're talking about a gentleman they hired um, that that had all of the bells and whistles to be a phenomenal, you know, uh, management senior management, you know, leader. Um, and over the holidays, the person you know basically gave their two two weeks notice, which was like I'm leaving now. So there wasn't even a two week notice, which usually for executives, unless you're leaving on bad terms, you don't just walk away. There's there's integrity. There's you know there's a responsibility. Well, once the person's left, you know, now all the truths are coming out and it becomes very frustrating. So I think all ages are back to ground zero. So you can be old and be loyal and dedicated and patriotic, uh, you know, and committed. That might have been some of the stereotypes. You know, baby boomers are materialistic, you know, competitive. That might have been them. You know, Generation X are kind of the transition generation looking at things new. You know, millennials, it's maybe about me and short term focus, etc. I think a lot of that's still there. But I think that the reality is if if you give people a sense of purpose to reality, people want to be part of that company. The problem is there's a whole lot of whack jobs out there that are on payroll that we need to find a way to wake them up or politely put them in the unemployment line. But our society right now, as we're recording this, it is stunning the amount of crap we even give oxygen to in this country. Topics that should be zero. You know, my response to quietly quitting was that they should also be quietly firing. So, you know. Yes, yes, and yes. As a as a publisher, you're part of the media, uh, and I'd like to ask what your opinion is of the efficacy and the accuracy of the media today in uh, correctly conveying what's happening in the business community and keeping people informed. Wow, I'd like to tell our listeners right now that this was a contrived question, and I asked Alan to ask it, but I didn't. Oh, I have been waiting for this one. I have some strong opinions, so let let me go. Let me. I like, uh, I like your other opinions, Jay. Other yeah, the non-strong. So I went to college to pursue journalism. I had a cross-country athletic scholarship and journalism scholarship that allowed me to leave Colorado to go to a small, I think, really good private school. I graduated. I spent some time in Kansas City broadcast and print journalism. I very quickly got disillusioned in the 80s with journalism because I found it to be very contrived, very bitter, very bullying, very negative, very toxic. You know, Alan White does all these great things, but I'm a journalist, so I'm going to make my way by finding some crap in your closet. Folks, I got to tell you, the, 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 the best person on the planet is going to have crap in her closet. I'm a, I'm, a, I, I, I'm a journalist. We're trying to find it. I left it cold because that's not my DNA, but that was part of the catalyst that was burning in my head that one day I'm going to start a publication like Professional Performance Magazine that can just feature the positive. Journalism plays with the concept of, again, old adage, 100 years old, whether it goes back to William Randolph Hearst or whoever, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, and you don't get into a fight with the publisher because they buy ink by the, you know, by the barrels. But when I went to college, Alan, we, we were taught ethics. It wasn't something that was just a side class. I mean, our faculty... Um, I went to Baker University, private college in Kansas. Uh, Eugene Pulliam, who was the founder of basically Sigma Delta Chi, the Society for Professional Journalism, you know, was from there, et cetera. So it was ingrained in us. 
early days of journalism, whether it's print or broadcast, now we're getting to your question, there was always a gatekeeper to what was printed or aired, whether it was the news producer, whether it was the publisher, whether it was your editor, and, and you didn't just go on and give an opinion piece. There really today is no news show. All news shows are opinion pieces. And that's the first thing to answer your question, is that back in the day, that crap never went. You would have, you know, um, Walter Cronkite, and he might give his opinion, or Harry Reasoner. See, most people don't know those names, but go do some homework. And, and across the bottom of the TV screen would be commentary. So it would even be coded that, you know, Alan Weiss is now going to give two minutes of his opinion on something. But it would be based upon facts. Keep in mind, again, a lot of our listeners may not remember. I mean, you know, Dan Rather got his butt fired because he bold-faced lied and contrived and made up. They they made up documents that didn't even exist because they didn't like the president of the United States. And for that, he got canned from a nightly news show back in the day when he was one of the top three gods. So, so that's important to answer in your story that we used to have regulations. TV talk shows like Whoopi Goldberg and The View, they all would have long, long time ago been fired from their jobs, but they don't because they are entertaining. They're not, they don't even give facts. I mean, they boldface lie. People that I used to like and respect, I, I, can't, I can't even watch it because they just, they, they lie and make stuff up because they're so emotionally tied to their emotional views based upon what they believe is logic. But if you calmly look at it, there is no logic to what they say. There's no facts. We make crap up. Now, last part of your, your question for me to answer, where we are today is that people make up what they believe is a truth and it's not. And you say it long enough and everyone then believes you, whether it's older people or younger people. And then you can't even have a civil conversation today with people because people are so emotionally bought into their views that if you're a Republican or Democrat and I'm the opposite, it's like we hate each other. It's like, why? I mean, I, and I'm sure you do too. I have lots of good friends at the federal level and state level on both political lines. And most of them, when you talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, have very similar views. We all want to have a safe society. We all want to make it easy for an Alan Weiss to get up every morning, go have a job of his choice, make an earning in the living so he can come home and pay his bills and maybe go out and have a drink or go to a movie. I mean, you know, we all want, we want good schools, but then when you put them together, it's stupid group think. No one can think. So why do we have the problems? There's no gatekeeper. There is no ethics. So there is no efficacy. There is no accountability. You make me the FCC director for one week. Last answer. I would get all of this crap in alignment real fast before I get assassinated because I would do it this way. Any person on any network that boldface lies to their viewers and makes something up, it's not true. You will be fined 100% of your revenue for the past 30 days. That will be your fine. You do that about four or five times and you're going to have accountability because someone might say, big deal, I can write that check. No, I said 100% of the revenue your entity generated for the past 30 days, there's your fine. There's your fine. There's your fine. People would start talking in truth. And if we can get back to truth, even though it's uncomfortable, ah, there's your line, the uncomfortable, people would be better at the end of the day. Jeffrey McGee, where do people contact you uh, for your services and for your help? My name, JeffreyMcGee.com. And the spelling is the correct spelling. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. McGee, M A. G-E-E, jeffreymcgee.com takes you to there. Professional Performance Magazine takes you to the other place. And connect with me or follow me on LinkedIn, just as I'm addicted to following you because you put out great content every day. 
yeah, it might be wrapped around an experience and an opinion, but it's great content, people. Um, I do the same thing every day. I uh, I post something on on sales and leadership, which is where I live. Jeff, I hope someday I can bring you out of your shell. I think we got a little closer today, and I want to thank <laughs> you for being on the uncomfortable truth. Alan, beyond thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.